Um, today we're reading out of 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of God. <laughs> you want to pray? Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Um, dear Father, um, just want to thank you for this time that we get to have together, that we can come together and just sit in your presence and think about your love for us because it can get lost in our weeks as we go about our days. I just pray this morning that we'll just take the time to quiet our hearts and minds and reflect on what you have for us in your word. Um, reflect on the kind of people we can be as we soak in your love and love one another, around, uh, love others around us. Um, and be with Nick as he preaches in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Emily. You all may be seated. Do you want that? I took that from you. Glad to be here with you this morning. Just as Emily prayed, I actually want to invite us to something that we didn't plan. Um, would you just turn your attention to God for just a minute? Just be mindful of his presence. Even just ask that he would like come Holy Spirit as a prayer we pray often. Um, and would you come to God uh, just in thankfulness and gratitude? Also, if you're like in a place of doubt or question this morning, come to God with your doubt and question. And Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would speak to my friends in the room over this next minute as we just like individually meet with you. And so, God, we come to you as a community now. We come to you, um, and we desire more of your presence. We desire more of your love. Desire more of your goodness to, like, permeate the depths of who we are. God, would you continue to transform us into the people you created us to be, would you continue to awaken our hearts to the things that your heart longs for and desires? We love you so much, Jesus. We thank you for your love that led us to repentance. We love you. We pray things in your name. Amen. Amen. We are going to continue our series in the practice of community. Uh, this is a deep moment for the life of River and Way. We're just excited as we continue to journey into the way of Jesus and into the person of Jesus that he is forming our community in this specific way. Today we're going to talk about witness in the church or witness and the church community. This last week, Kristen Smart's murder was solved according to the verdict that found Paul Flores guilty. Any, like, Kristen Smart fans, like the Your Own Backyard, three of you. I just opened with a really bad opening if no one knows who Kristen Smart is. So Kristen Smart was uh, a student at Cal Poly who in, went missing in 1996. Um, I'm not an expert on this story, so having to come up with an explanation off the top of my head is a bit difficult, but uh, they were never able to find who had kidnapped and killed Kristen. And this happened in San Luis. That's why you know, Chris, because it's Cal Poly. That's what it is. Uh, but this happened in San Luis. And, and ever since then, there's been an outpouring, like a cry of the city to like bring justice to Kristen Smart and her family. And from the very beginning, uh, there was a person, Paul Flores, who was like the primary suspect. 
Um, but if, if you do math really quickly, if she was kidnapped and killed in 1996, and we are in 2022, we're talking 26 years without justice. And from the very beginning, there were some things that went wrong as cops and as the Cal Poly Police Department tried to sort out what had happened. And the story, the, the, the murder, had kind of gone quiet and gone dead for a long period of time until a local boy created a podcast called Your Own Backyard. And he began to dig into the story where things began to be revealed and come up that had never been revealed before. Much of it, not like a singular piece of testimony, but like a, a giant thousand piece puzzle where people reaching out and connecting dots that had never been connected before by this young podcaster who had never done a research project in his life began to like uncover things that the police department had not ever been able to get their hands on. And so this kind of like re-spurred the investigation and ultimately this last week, uh, Paul Flores was found guilty of murdering Kristen Smart. And so after 26 years, a bunch of little pieces of testimony, there's no like smoking gun, they still have not found Kristen Smart's body, but a bunch of little pieces of testimony have put together enough of a picture that a, a jury of his peers found him guilty. And if you're at all a crime junkie or like into true crime, I actually just lost you. I took a risk with my opening of introducing a new true crime story. And most of you are like zoned out now and you're like Googling your own backyard so you can subscribe to the podcast, which is okay, just hurry up. So you have all week to do that. You can binge it throughout the week. But what we wanted to look at today is the importance of testimony and witness in the world how Jesus actually ties together your witness with your community, with your life, with the people you follow Jesus with. If you're anything like me, if you came of age following Jesus in the 90s or 2000s, the words witness and testimony almost feel like dirty words. For me at least, they were more tied to like shame and guilt than it was to love and flourishing. This was an idea of an obligation that I must share my faith with others. I must be an evangelist, that I must share my testimony and witness to others about the goodness of Christ. And in my brain, and maybe just my church experience, there was like this spiritual quota that I had to like tie to sharing my faith enough to like be a good Christian. I have a friend who went on a missions trip to Scotland one summer in high school, and I remember him coming back from the trip and talking to him about his experience, and to sum it up, there was this like huge amount of pressure on a 17-year-old kid in a foreign land to go around and win converts to come back to the group to celebrate the converts. He was supposed to go and share his faith in a compelling way to a bunch of Scotlanders who like, don't know Jesus and have often never heard the story of Jesus. But like this was the expectation placed on this kid who was like trying to get intercultural experience loving Jesus, but like he's not an evangelist by any sense of the imagination. Yeah, that's what this, his entire summer was built around. I just remember he came back depressed and sad and feeling like, am I even a Christian anymore? I had zero converts. Am I even a Christian anymore? This idea of witness was normalized through the Billy Graham era, that we were all to be Billy Graham type evangelists. So in my world, before I knew how to like talk to a girl I liked at school, I was supposed to be able to give like clear kingdom confession to who Jesus is in a compelling way. I was terrified to talk to girls, and yet I felt bad about not sharing my faith in a way that was winsome to the effect of Jesus. And to be clear, that the idea of Billy Graham, the idea of evangelism surely belongs as a part of the Christian faith. So while I critique it, by no means do I wanna like throw it out. There are absolutely gifted street preachers and evangelists 
who have a gift that is animated by the Spirit that allows them to share words about goodness of God and his kingdom that compels people to respond. We see even in Ephesians 4, like the evangelist is a gift from Jesus himself. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. But this is a specific role, the role of evangelist. This is an authoritative place of leadership within the church. It's, it's by no means everyone's gifting. This is not my gift. It's part of the reason River and Way lacks people who are like new to following the way of Jesus because we don't really have like a true evangelist on our team and we recognize that. It's a need. Like if you're an evangelist in the room, please like help us lead in this way because it's not an area of strength for us. But the reality is this call to witness, this call to share, this, this invitation to, to live out your testimony comes from Jesus himself. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we have this biblical mandate that we are people who are filled with the Spirit of God to be Christ's witnesses wherever we are in the world. So I absolutely do believe it is the responsibility of God's people, of his church, of his bride to witness and to share testimony. It does belong, the responsibility does belong to all of us. And there's a beauty to this word witness that we miss in the English language a bit. In English, the term witness comes to mean speaking of like things you know about. Think of like a testimony in court. But in the Greek, the word witness comes from the same root as the word martyr does. In the Greek, the word witness comes from the same root as the word martyr. You see in Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, Witness is not just about something we do with words, but it's speaking about something we do with our lives. We have to remember that to be a witness means not just to spew words into the world, but to have an experience in our life that we would experience God in our life and then to share that experience of God with others as an invitation into the kingdom through relationships through our lived out experience and expression. So to me, it seems like we are often stuck between the idea of the invitation to witness and not being Billy Graham. We are stuck between the invitation, the command from Jesus to witness, to be a witness to the ends of the earth and not being an evangelist. So in the course of my life, in my Christian experience, what has happened in this in-between is that we end up with witnessing no longer being about Jesus and the kingdom of God, but being about why you ought to come to my church. And you see, those are two very different things. We don't share the good news of the kingdom. We share about the cool things that our church does and why I think you should be compelled to come to it. We invite our friends to come to a Sunday gathering hoping it's a good day. Like we've all had that experience, I've had the experience where we invite a friend and then the pastor speaks on like the most awkward passage on the most awkward day in the most awkward way. Like, and I've been that guy. So like grace to those pastors because I've been him too. But that reality of witnessing, of inviting others to church or to a Sunday program, it seems to fall short significantly from the command and the instruction Jesus gives us. God uses it 100%. My salvation experience came through one of those invitations. But this, an invitation to a program, does not seem like the thing Jesus is commissioning us to do in particular in a post-truth, secular world. The invitation to come to a Sunday gathering is no longer compelling. 
If you have not noticed, secular people are not exactly beating down the doors of the church to come to Jesus. If you have not noticed, the data says Christians aren't exactly beating down the doors of the church to come to Jesus. So it's important that as we dream about a communal witness, that we dig a little bit deeper into the scriptures to see what we can find about community, to see what we can find about loving one another, being a witness to the world. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we see Paul launch into this lengthy explanation about correction within what's happening in the church of Corinth. People are speaking in tongues and prophesying, which is great and beautiful. I nor Paul seem to have any problem with that. But there is a concern about the lack of structure or the way things are happening within the church. It is likely that the church of Corinth has fallen into a love of gifts from the Spirit rather than a love for the Spirit himself. And I think we all need that reminder regularly. That's not just a Corinth thing, that the good things in your life do not come from the manifestation of your own will. They come from God. That we might not get too bound up in the things we enjoy in life, but we would be bound up in God who is the giver of good gifts. That we would be bound up in God who is the giver of good gifts. And Paul is poking at that a bit, particularly in 1 Corinthians 13, that all things, all gifts, all relationships within the church are nothing if they are not aimed toward love. But in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul launches into this idea that when those who are unbelievers, who are outside the community of faith, outside the community of God, when they come to a worship gathering, when they come to a house church in this Corinthian context, they likely will experience some of these things happening within this community. In this stuff, these gifts should be used to build up the body of Christ. What Paul is concerned about here is the testimony of the church. What Paul is concerned about is the witness of the church. He is concerned not about the gifts being used, if you were to argue that the gifts of the Spirit within the kingdom of God has ceased, I think you have, like, you've got to do away with 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians, like, you have a really big task ahead of you to pull out a cessationist argument, in my opinion. But Paul's concern here is about building up the testimony of the church. That as people come into the gathering, they should experience God. And they should experience God through the people of God. Through the love of the people of God. And there must be some semblance of order. Some sort of structure to this stuff under the hierarchy of love that is the person of Jesus. Because it's his church in the first place. But for these manifestations of the Spirit, for, for the Spirit to be working in these way, it, it must be in a way that's somewhat ordered that it might be compelling and make sense. And the reason I bring you to this today is not because I want to talk about spiritual gifts, although like I really do. Like I really hope we get to do that one day. But what I want to understand that is baked into the narrative of the New Testament is the idea that the church, that the body of Christ, it exists to be witness to people who are far from God. And the first thing I want you to see from this is that most of you are not called to evangelize in a Billy Graham sort of way, but supposed to witness based on the testimony of your life. And if we're to be honest, life is with people. Life happens in the context of community, in the context of relationships. And we've been poking this point for some time now through our practice of community series, and I'm not ashamed to poke it again. You see, life in spiritual life, the same thing, is not hidden in this closet, tucked away with God. There may be moments of that, but real life is life lived out with others. 
You, not, you do not just exist in a one-way relationship with God when you are uh, like just alone in your room, but you will exist in a relationship with God and with others as a community as you follow Jesus. Does that make sense? It's the reason in December here we break for Advent on Sunday mornings and just go into homes that we might like actually invest in community relationships in a significant way. But your life, while aspects of it, being alone with God is more lived out amongst people. In Galatians 5 verse 22 and 23, it lists the fruits of the Spirit. And I believe it'll be on the screen. Already is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a verse that we quote often. We put it on social media. We hang it in a sign in our homes for decoration. But the reality is that to like live into this, to, to live into the presence of the Spirit filling you, much of this fruit is, is fruit that cannot exist by itself. At the very least, love, kindness, goodness, and gentleness is something that can only manifest in relationship with other people. Much of the fruit of the Spirit is relationship that is, is much of the fruit of the Spirit is fruit that manifests itself in the context of relationship and community. The invitation to follow Jesus is not just that God becomes your father, but like the body of Christ becomes your brothers and sisters. We have a tendency in the West, and particularly in the Protestant evangelical West, to pull those things apart, and the scriptures do not pull those apart. You have heavenly father and you have brothers and sisters. Jesus' most often metaphor for the church in the New Testament is that of family. You see, we have to be with people. Life is lived with people. You don't grow in love by being alone by yourself. You don't practice kindness by staying in your room. If you wanna grow in these ways, if you wanna grow in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have to do it with others. You have to do it with others. And this is an invitation because both, like, both belong. Like, ought, ought have, should we have our quiet time, our devotion, our, our time where I'm fully present to God? Of course you should. I'm not saying get rid of those things. But I am saying much of that like, comes to fruition, manits, manifests itself as fruit as we live that out with others. And this, this idea of witness should be a place where like, we're not just inviting people uh, to a thing, but we're inviting people into our lives as we experience God and we live that out amongst others. I think too often we've like, shared about a thing that, we, that isn't the kingdom of God and we're trying to win people to something that, that is not the thing that I'm actually in love with trying to witness to people in a way that is like getting them to a program rather than getting them to the feet of Jesus, rather than getting them to a place where they experience the kingdom of God. And I think for us, to be honest, we have to like drink from that well in order to give from that well. We can't share a reality of our life that doesn't exist with others. I used to listen to a lot of podcasts. I listened to a few in particular, Theology in the Raw, uh, the Church of the City, New York, Serial, true crime podcast for any of my true crime friends, Questions with N.T. Rye, This Cultural Moment, Food Trucks in Babylon, the list goes on and on and on. And some of you have taken up listening to some of my favorite podcasts, which I'm super excited about because then we have more things to talk about. Um, but a while ago, someone told me about a podcast that I should listen to and I had not listened to that podcast. And I did the ignorant thing where I then took that podcast and passed it along to someone else without listening to it. There's so many grimaces in the room, it's funny. Because <laughs> you've all done it. <laughs> and you know where the story is going. And so I gave this podcast to my friend Michael, and he listened to it, and he was not a fan of the podcast. 
And I feel as though now I have lost all podcast credibility with Michael. I can no longer give him a podcast to try because I've already done that, even though I told him I hadn't listened to it yet. But I had invited Michael to listen to something that I had not listened to. He was not a fan. And after that, like, I couldn't even hold a conversation about what the podcast was about to try to like, save myself. And the reason I share that, I think it's important that we, we live into a reality. The thing we're witnessing, the thing we're sharing, the thing we're testifying about is something that exists within us, something that is a part of our life, something that is at the core of who we are. And we're going to continue to wade into that in just a bit as we look at like love and this idea of love flowing into us that it might flow out of us. But first we have to realize that like your witness, your, if your life is with people, then your witness is with people. Where your life is, maybe said differently, where your life is, there your witness is too. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. takes me a while to get there. I didn't do speed drills when I was a kid, and there's like six of you in the room that know what that is and think it's funny. The rest of you have no idea, and that's okay. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. There's just a couple things I want to highlight from this passage in 1 John. At the beginning it says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I think the first reality that the scriptures teaches us, that John the author teaches us, is that like the inflowing of God's love for you should be flowing outward to others. The inflowing of God's love for you ought to be flowing outward toward others. Uh, this is true, like we see this really early on, even in Genesis 12, 3 with Abraham. Abraham has been blessed in order not to like keep his blessing alone in his room, but he's been blessed in order to be a blessing that all the nations may know who God is. But the reality is in order for you to be a person of love, you must first receive God's love. And then, only after that, then the appropriate action with that love is to become love and embody God's love to others. And the scriptures have a lot of ways of saying this, to become more like Christ, to when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he says to love God and love neighbor. But this is the effectual responsibility that you and I carry as a person who is loved by God is that you become a person of love in the world. This is the fulfillment of that. You will be a witness to the ends of the earth passage. This is the way that you embody, a way that you embody the kingdom of God to others in the world is by love. Now, I could just name for a second that sometimes when we're overwhelmed or stressed or burdened or we lack intimacy with Jesus or our vision is small or our world is narrow, love seems really, really difficult. Love seems really, really difficult. And I would say that often that is a sign or symptom that like we in our own existence begin to run dry of love like a pitcher that is full of water, like it, it, at the end, like you get to a point where there's no water left in the pitcher. Much is the same with like our love, our capacity to love. Some days it just empties out. But you see, God's love for us 
is abundant. There's no end to it. Not even death is an end to God's love for us. Remember Ephesians 3 verse 18 says, and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. You see, when we, when we have intimacy with Christ or when we like begin to run low on love or run low on vision of how to live faithfully into the world in front of us as a follower of Jesus, we often trickle down to the point where we're like love, it, there's just nothing left to give. We come to the ends of ourselves and that is not a conclusion but an invitation when we come to the end of ourselves. This is a place we must learn to find ourselves again and come back to the person of Jesus, the goodness of God, the abundant love of God again. Because God's abundant love is like a well at, that we have access to through intimacy with Christ that we can continue to draw on in our lives. If you begin to run low on love for your spouse or significant other, there's some love down in the well of Christ. Running low on love for your neighbor, there's some love down in the well. Run low on love for your kids or patience with your kids. Anyone need more patience in the room? There's a well of that too right where God is. And his desire is to be present to you that he may share his abundance with you that you might be a witness, a testimony, a lived out picture amongst people of God's goodness and love in the world. Love from God flows into your life and love then ought to flow out of your life. Or maybe said differently, like you cannot give what you do not have. You cannot give what you do not have. To become a person of love, you must learn to saturate yourself in God's love, in his presence, in his goodness. You must soak in it. And the vision of God's love for you is, is not to just like have an intimate moment alone in your prayer closet where you receive God's love and then you just stay in the closet holding on to that reality. That's actually not reality. And that's not Christ's picture of why he blesses or shares love in the world. The picture is that, that God shares his love with you, that you might receive it again, that you go into the world to embody the mission of Jesus. That is the invitation for Christ's church to continue the work of Jesus in the world. Empowered by the same spirit that empowered Jesus. We carry love into the world just like Jesus did. The working end of God's love for you is that your life changes. That your life becomes an effectual witness of the love of God to the world. Again, we witness to people with our lives. With our life. And there's an ancient quote. It says, share the gospel and use words if you must. And I have a love-hate relationship with that quote. Because what they're trying to say is it's actually really beautiful that your life without words should be a witness, which is true, but only like half right. If there was someone in your life who you intentionally invested into and like committed your life to people who are far from God and they came over to your house every week for dinner and they played with your kids and they watched your kids while you were gone and they set out the trash can or like all the things that we share our lives with others in and then they began to be compelled by your life toward the person of Jesus and then the time was right and then you're like, but I shouldn't use words. Now, use the words. Like, words are really, really, really important. Conveying God's love for someone in word is really good and beautiful and belongs as a part of the Christian story. It's never wrong to share the love that God has for someone. But I think we're at a precipice moment in the Christian story where we really have two groups of people, those that are quick to share words about Christ but will not share their lives about Christ. And those that are quick to share life with people but not quick to share words with people. 
And what the world needs, what the deep, hurting, hopeless world needs is people, God's people to do both. People who share words and share their lives demonstrated before words ever come into play and demonstrated well after words ever come into play. God's people must do both, share their lives with people and use words to describe the love that God has for them. In my era, what the church has grown accustomed to is sharing words without sharing our lives, which is a compromised, easy way out of witness that we don't actually see described much in the scriptures. And this, this is where community comes in. You see, part of the tension of witness or of invitation is that you are a witness to something. When you are inviting a person to church, you are inviting them to something. So I want you to hold the best you can these two pictures in your brain together. The first is that you tell a coworker that you come to River and Way or you go to some other church and you have a conversation about a, a church plant because that's what we are. We're like 18 months old. We're this brand new little church plant. And what that even means because that's really confusing to people who don't know church already. But this coworker happens to be Catholic so the idea of a church plant seems almost like heretical to their childhood but that's a, another conversation. But you invite them to come check out River and Way and by some little miracle of God working in their heart, a person who does not have faith in Jesus agrees to come to a completely foreign space they know nothing about. They have no idea how to dress. They have no idea what happens culturally. They don't know the norms of our practices and our rhythms and our rituals. They don't know if we are a cult, but they listen to that one podcast about Jonestown, so they're a little bit leery. But they come. And we have some liturgical undertones because they're raised Catholic. They feel like a little bit comfortable in the experience. I wear a t-shirt and not a collar, which makes them a little bit more uncomfortable. Your friend comes and they, they sing a bit because there's words on the screen. They enjoy the five minutes because they happen to be greeted by one of the like handful of people in the room who their intentional mission is to make sure people feel comfortable during the five minutes. There are people like that in this room. Their goal of the five minutes is to like find a new human and make sure they feel comfortable. They listen to a teaching about Sabbath, which seems disorienting and otherworldly, which it is. They don't take the bread and cup because something feels a bit odd and weird about it for them. And they felt weird when everyone else got up to take the blood and the body of Christ. And then we wrap up and we pray at the end. And I tamped that example down with someone who like knew Catholic undertones. They had a little bit of access to the Christian experience. Imagine a staunch atheist who has never been to church and shows up and we start talking about the body and the blood of Christ. Imagine what that feels like in a post-truth, post-secular world. Or you tell your coworker about your house church. You tell them about the families that are a part of it. You tell them about the Lopez family who often brings pupusas to house church. They don't know what pupusas are, but they're an adventurous eater, so they're down to try it. They come to your house, they meet with people you do house church with. You all sing a couple of songs that are printed out on paper. Some of them they don't know, but that's okay. You sit down to a meal together. We eat our pupusas and homemade enchiladas and some store-bought cake for someone's birthday. There's a bunch of kids running around. Mid-meal, she asks if you guys do this every week, and she's a bit surprised when the answer is yes. At the table, someone opens a Bible and reads a little section from Acts, and the people at the table talk and ask questions and try to figure out what the author meant when he wrote this and how that's supposed to apply to us today. At the end, someone asks if there's anything the group can pray for, and you, you pray for your friends at the table. You see, the first picture the first picture is us, in, it, it, like it's a normal experience for us in the room. The invitation to a Sunday gathering is a normal experience for us in the room, but for unchurched or de-churched people who are far from God currently, this is a gigantic obstacle to cross. It is a gigantic obstacle to cross. 
They're an outsider to a community of people who come to a foreign atmosphere, asked to engage in foreign practices unfamiliar to them. And if it is a good church day, when the pastor is on and the music are both on, they like run into the right people that make them feel comfortable, they may have a positive experience. But the second event, the table event, the house church event is a bit less normal to you and to I, but is much more normal to the outsider. They show up to your house or someone else's house with you. You sing some songs, say some prayers. You may even take the bread and the cup and you share a meal together around a table, but there's always room and time for questions to be asked and stories to be shared. Because in house church, questions are not only allowed but encouraged, or as my friend Tyson used to say, God loves good questions and we ought to as well. You see, in house church, everyone contributes to the night. It's much more like a family sort of gathering. You see, the invitation to one thing is an invitation to a culturally foreign thing that may become a shared experience at best, but the reality is that many people in our city have an aversion to coming to a Sunday morning church gathering. The invitation to your house is an invitation into a relationship around a table. We said this before when we talked about table at the center of the church that like invitation to eat or to break bread with someone is much more than just food. It's about relationship. It's about sharing a bit of myself with the people that I sit around the table with. And I'm not dismissing one. Both, I believe, are necessary. Gathering together to seek after God in a corporate sense absolutely belongs to the life of the church. But a handful of families gathering around the table to follow Jesus together absolutely belongs to the life of the church. And if I had to pick one as the front door of our church, I would take the invitation for your friends to join you at the table. That they would come into community breaking bread around the table and getting to know one another in relationship. Because living into community around the table together as you follow Jesus is a unique witness to the world that is much needed. Living around, living into community around the table together as you follow Jesus is a unique witness to the world that is much needed. The reality is that as our city continues to secularize, more and more people will be less inclined to come to a church building on a Sunday morning where they could hear a talk when they could stay home and hear a talk from a much better preacher or a TED talk that feels more applicable to their life. We see this happening now. I just met with a pastor friend of mine who pastors in town who uh, has always carried this like despise of doing church online, but through COVID, their church completely shifted. And on a normal Sunday, they have 200 people come to their Sunday gathering and they have 200 people online at their Sunday gathering. The data is even worse for younger generations. People in their 30s and 20s are leaving the church in droves because it lacks intellect and thoughtfulness. It lacks authenticity and it lacks, most importantly, in my opinion, a deep craving of our own heart and soul in which we were created in Christ's image, a place and a sense of belonging. I believe the mechanism of witness is no longer to invite people to a a religious gathering And if I'm honest, most of us are scared to invite our friends to come to church anyways because it may be weird. But what if you formed a family-like community that lived intentionally, purposefully on mission and in service to others? And you sought to mature into discipleship as you followed Jesus in the central element of that was that every week you committed to come and share food together. Does that place feel like an easier invitation for your friends who are far from God? Does that maybe even feel like a bit more authentic of an invitation? And there are two things I want to speak to and then we'll, and then we'll wrap up. When I invite someone to church on Sunday morning, I invite them to a space that exists to experience and encounter God. Where we sit under the scriptures, 
And largely this gathering, what we're doing this morning, it exists not for people necessarily far from God, but for people that already follow Jesus. That this is a place of equipping, exhorting, and encouraging the body of Christ to continue to experience God and grow in love for God as they live missionally into the world. But when I invite someone to a meal at my house, I am inviting them to a community of people, hopefully, that are not just participating in a thing, but they are doing life together in a meaningful way. They're following Jesus in all of life together. In my experience, what I'm actually inviting them to is a picture of the kingdom of God, of a feast table where we don't just talk at you like I am today, but we have conversation around the table as a community. Regardless, and this is what I want you to hear, maybe more than anything else, maybe, I'm not sure. Regardless of where you invite someone, We must remember what we're ultimately desiring for them as we share our witness. That like our, our deepest desire is that they would experience the goodness of the kingdom of God. That they would experience the goodness of King Jesus. Our invitation, whether it's to a Sunday or a house church, like our invitation is for them to experience God either in a holy, sacred moment or through the love and kindness of people. Ultimately, all things that we do, our aim, our desire is to please Jesus. To please Jesus. To be found faithful with the things that he's put in front of us. Secondly, last week I spoke about life around the table and church around the table. What I want to remind us of today is that the story of God from beginning to end is like an invitation to do life with God and life with others. That is what the table metaphor is. It's a metaphor for the place where life happens, where discipleship happens, where kingdom things happens, where like God manifests himself through the love of people around you to you. And these kingdom things at the table are often not big token experiences, but they're very ordinary things of life caught up in faithful commitment to the inbreaking kingdom of God together as a community as we follow Jesus. Like the little ordinary faithfulness of praying every week of kids making noises they run around is like soup in the fall because it's finally cold. Like all extremely normal things, also all extremely sacred things. I think the testimony of faithful commitment within a community is unique in this day and age. And in and of itself, like the testimony, the testimony of people who are committed to show up weekly and honestly and in reality to one another paints a picture of what John Mark Comer would say is like people in the future in the present. So like we are people in the future, we're people of the future, but we are in the present. Like a picture of one day what is to come. People around a table with the presence of God as we're fully present to one another. John 13, 35 says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Your love for one another is what reveals who you disciple, what you disciple to the world. Your witness as a follower of Jesus is bound up in your loves. Love is revealed in relational commitment and, and this is demonstrated most clearly in the person of Jesus. Love is revealed in your relational commitment and this is demonstrated most clearly in Jesus' commitment to you and to me. Jesus' witness was bound up in his life and put on full display for you and for me. I want to close just in reading these texts. Ephesians 3.18 says, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. 
as God's love flows back into you, as you like rhythm yourself, habituate yourself to receive God's love again, may it flow into you and then to the ends of the earth. Or maybe that's too broad and too big. May it flow into you and into your workspace and into the way that you parent, into the way that you speak to other people, into all the like nooks and crannies of your life. That as we as a community move toward house church together, that we would start with our roots deeply planted in the soil of Jesus, in the soil of Christ, that we might become like a tree, as Psalms 1 describes, that is nourished by the water of life, that yields its fruit in season, that we may provide shade to those who need nourishment and rest to those who move in and out of our lives who are filled and overwhelmed with hunger, that we might be a space where they could land and feast together around the table, that we would have faith, as the poet Wendell Berry says, to care for the two inches of soil beneath the tree that will take hundreds if not thousands of years to grow a giant sequoia, that our small fraction of a life would be part of a communal witness to the world that Christ has and is redeeming all things. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you move in power in our hearts as you continue to draw us back to yourself? as we like orient and reorient and habituate and rehabituate our lives to encountering you in very ordinary ways. And as you call us and invite us to live that out in communal expression as we love uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ and we love those who are so far from you. God, would you continue to work in us? Would you continue to work through us, not for anything that we have done, other than received the grace and the goodness of God. May we receive that again, even this morning. Jesus, we love you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. During this next song, the tables are open. If you would uh, get the bread and the cup, there's juice and wine and bread and a gluten-free cracker. So uh, the tables are open for you to get the elements of communion. Then after the song, we will commune together. <laughs>